You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. Well, first of all, I can't believe how amazing you look. I mean, I've always known you as someone who has got this amazing inner strength. And I think your beauty comes not just from the fact that you are a beautiful woman, but it's like this inner strength has always been there. And you were always, to me, an incredibly powerful woman. And it's about 30 years ago. Yes. And you look amazing. (laughs) Oh, thank you so much. You know what it is, Steve? I sleep with men who are much younger than myself. (laughs) And I suck (laughs) off their life force. (laughs) I'm really serious. I think that has a lot to do with it. No, actually, to be honest with you, um, first and foremost, I have to thank my parents because I have amazing genes. I mean, my mother in her 70s, looked like she was in her 40s. Uh, and my father as well. So there's that. And then um, I, I've i just been on a, an amazing health journey because I discovered in February that um, I had kind of tipped over into diabetic range. And no, she's not having that, okay? So I, as of this morning, have lost 40 pounds. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. And can we, can uh, we talk um, about your parents actually? Because one of the things that really interests me about people is their drive. Successful yes. people have lots of drives, and often it comes from something in their childhood, something in their past. Have you ever analyzed where you get your drive from? And was it yes. from your parents in some way? Definitely from my parents. I believe that some people, it can go one of two ways. Some people become driven because their parents are constantly telling them that they're not good enough and that they're a failure and they'll never amount to anything. So, you know, six-year-old little Johnny says, well, I'm going to show you. Or says, well, daddy's not going to love me unless I'm a success. And so they become driven from that type of motivation. Then there's the kind of motivation that I and my siblings had, which is um, my parents, my mother in particular, said to us that we were infinitely loved. They would love us forever and that we could achieve anything. Because you have to remember that my parents uh, grew up in the Jim Crow era in the United States. I mean, they were born in the twenties and um, they both went on to go to medical school. And my mother, in fact, was the first woman of any race to do graduate studies in medicine at UCLA, my alma mater. Um, So they, they really, when you talk about carving a path or, you know, leading the way and taking the blows head on, so that we could succeed. My parents were the epitome of that. Um, And so because they had achieved what they achieved, they told us that we could achieve whatever we chose. And um, with that unbelievable support, uh, it it really lent itself to my self-confidence because I knew I was loved. And, um, you know, when my mother died, the day, like two days before she died, we had the kind of conversation that every child wants to have with their parent, where any slights or anything were forgiven, and um, we expressed our undying love. 
for one another. And I knew after that conversation that that was the last time I would speak to her. Oh, well, had you, I mean, I find that really fascinating because I actually had a similar conversation with my mother two days before she died. And my mother told me, I think I'd, I'd, I'd looked to my mother for years for some, for confirmation of, of me as a gay man um, yes. and all these things. And two days before she died, she said to me, I hope you meet a man who is as kind to you as you have been to me. And she Aww. went through all these things Aww. that she wanted in my life. And it fundamentally changed my life. And that's only three yeah. years ago. It fundamentally changed your wow. life. So I wow. understand the power of that moment. Yeah. Was that a fundamental change for you? That conversation, no, except for the fact that I find a lot of people live out their adult lives incomplete. Because I think a lot of our issues come from a lack of completion with our childhood issues, which usually stem from our parents. So unless you feel complete with your parents, you will not be complete as an adult. I just want to talk about your parents a bit more because you, you were <laughs> yes. talking, obviously, you know, the Jim Crow era, the era that they were, uh, that they grew up in and the era yes. that they had to uh, make an impact on the world. Yes. I mean, they were completely aware of what was going on at that time, obviously. But as a child, when did you become aware in terms of what they were going through? Because, you know, that's, that's quite a heavy thing for a child it to witness. It wasn't until I was much older because they really t made an effort to shield us from that. Uh, again, my mother in particular. My parents divorced when I was two and a half. So um, I was very close with my father and he was very much present in our lives. But the person I saw every day was my mother. And this is this career woman, uh, you know, cardiologist um, who was a very, very powerful individual. You would have loved my mother. And not only was she a genius, a literal genius, she was very loving and magnanimous and she never forgot where she came from. So she would have all these celebrity clients because she switched her medical practice into holistic medicine and preventive health care in the 1970s, way before it was really fashionable. Um, but she still had <clears throat> all of her, uh, we have a, um, an insurance here called Medi-Cal, which is, you know, basically government paid insurance. And so she had a lot of poor patients that were still on Medi-Cal. A lot of really exclusive, you know, like Hollywood doctors would never dream of taking Medi-Cal. And she still took it so that she could still bring these cutting edge modalities to the community that she came from. And I, I never forgot that. And she would be at the office until eight, sometimes nine o'clock at night, seeing these people that had taken the bus for two hours to get to the office to see her. And, um, and she still had made time for us. She was a fabulous mother, you know? So um, she grew up so hard that she didn't want us to experience that growing up. So I grew up like a little rich white girl, basically. Um, I grew up in Bel Air and Malibu, which are the exclusive neighborhoods in Los Angeles. I had a Porsche for my first car before I even had a proper driver's license. I only had a learner's permit. When I was 15 and a half, she bought me a Porsche. So that's how I grew up. But my father was the one who really 
wanted us to know more about our African heritage and more about civil rights. And I mean, my father marched with Dr. King. My father debated uh, Malcolm X taking uh, Dr. King's viewpoint. Um, he ran for city council. So it wasn't really until I got into my 20s that I started to really understand uh, racism in America because I was shielded from it. I grew up surrounded by wealth. What was that moment like? I mean, what happened to you that um, made you really aware? Was there a moment? Well, there was one in particular. I mean, because the kids we grew up with were fairly accepting. So, I mean, I know, I know seeing, watching on television, there was a show called Julia that starred Diane Carroll, the late great, who was actually a patient of my father's. My father was a clinical psychologist. So I used to play with her little bitch daughter who I couldn't stand. Spoiled little brat. Anyway, um, uh, so seeing her on television as the lead and a professional and not a domestic in a television series was a big deal, especially because my mother was a doctor. So, um, but I only had that one role model. All the rest were white. But this doesn't register when you're growing up. It just is what's normal. You you're get used to not seeing yourself represented. But I remember going to <clears throat> New York once when I was in my 20s. And I, uh, there was a huge storm in Colorado. So my flight that was going via Denver got canceled. And I was routed through Houston, Texas. And I got on that flight and I got to Houston and there was someone at the gate telling everyone where to go to catch their connecting flight. And the person there told me a gate that was way on the other side of the airport. And if you know Houston airport, it's enormous. It's like a city. And so by the time I got there and realized that the gate I was meant to go to was two gates over from where I just landed, by the time I got back there, my flight had left. And so I was full of righteous indignation and rage. And I went to the counter and I said, your employee gave me the wrong gate and caused me to miss this flight. You will be putting me in a hotel tonight and blah, blah, blah. And this person, I could just see it. I, I can speak the better part of four languages. I've been to, at this point in my life, about 48 countries. They just looked me up and down and just saw another N-word. And they said, well, everyone else seems to have made their flights. And they didn't do anything. And it was at that moment I realized exactly what it felt like to be treated like an N-word. How did that make you feel? Horrible, obviously. Completely powerless. Powerless. And um, just, I felt, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, impotent. And you know, you get this flush of rage in your face and you know that there's nothing you can say that's going to change the situation. So you just tuck your tail between your legs and go away and, you know, live to fight another day. I've also, uh, well, actually, you know, before that, when I was 16, oh no, when my sister was 16 and I was, so she was 16, I was 11. My mother had gotten a new Mercedes. And so she gave her old one to my sister who was 16 and it was a powder blue 450 SL. And we lived on the beach in Malibu 
And uh, so we were driving home and I was in, you know, my sister was driving. I was in the passenger seat and this California highway patrolman pulled us over and said, uh, you know, she asked him, what did I do officer that had you pulled me over? I wasn't speeding. And he just came out and said, I just wondered how a person such as yourself would have a car like this. And I remember, uh, you know, us showing him everything and he realized there was nothing he could bust us for. So he took off and we just looked at each other and we started crying because it was humiliating. It was humiliating because we knew, especially in that area, we had lots of white friends who drove nice cars and they never had that happen to them. I mean, it's terrible to think that that is a long time ago and, you know, very little in many ways, yes, has, has, has changed. changed. Yes. So I know you as someone who is also very a political activist, who's someone who's very interested in politics and um, very open and will speak their mind, which I think is an incredibly important thing in this world. Um, yes. How does that feel when you look back at, at, at an event like that and know that that could happen today or tomorrow and not much has really changed. Honey, why do you think I moved to Italy? <laughs> I'm over, I moved, I was one of those people, you know, a lot of people said, oh, well, if Trump gets elected, I'm going to leave. Well, I did. I actually did it once before when I moved to the UK. I moved to the UK um, during the Bush years. Um, and I, I put my money where my mouth is. I will not live in a country where the, the leading administration is blatantly racist. I will not do it. Now, Italy has its own issues with racism. Um, the whole EU does. But generally, uh, I, I don't receive uh, as much as if I had been a, an African refugee, because I'm not. I'm an American. That does make a difference, believe it or not, um, which is sad. <laughs> You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. You mentioned earlier about Diane Carroll and having um, a figure who is a mirror to you in a sense. You know what I mean? You see someone on television uh, who's African-American and you have then uh, a sort of representation, Mom. finally. You yeah. know what I mean? During yes. the 60s was uh, Motown. In the 70s, we had Stax. There were, there were lots of... African-American artists who were coming through during that period. What music did your parents listen to and what music did you tend towards? Well, that's interesting because it seems, I mean, yes, it was coming more to the fore than ever before, but it was very compartmentalized, which is part of the reason that you and I know each other because I had to move to the UK to do the kind of music that I wanted to do. Because if you were in the US, if you didn't do R&B or soul music, they didn't want to know. That's all we were allowed to do. When you had, see, unless you were uh, considered like an exotic import, such as Jimi Hendrix broke in the UK before he came back to the US. Donna Summer broke in Germany before she came back and broke in the US. And that was my ultimate plan was to break in the UK and then come back to the U.S. Um, so growing up, though, I listened to what my sister listened to, and we listened to what our friends listened to. 
Now, our parents grew up uh, or, or were first married uh, in, and they lived in the East Village in New York when they went to Columbia University. And they would have spaghetti Saturdays uh, to feed all the starving musicians. And people like Charlie Bird Parker would come to their house because they were starving and they would feed them. Um, so my father was very, very into jazz. And we would listen to a lot of jazz when we were driving in the car and Duke Ellington and people like that. My mother listened to um, a lot of contemporary pop, if you believe that. Uh, she loved Elton John. And in fact, my first concert ever was Elton John, the Goodbye Yellow Brick Road Tour. And we went to the forum, all very um, naive, not realizing it had been sold out for weeks. So we were at the Los Angeles Forum, and it's a round building. So we walked around and around and around during the first act, which was Kiki D, and trying to find tickets, and we couldn't find any. And so finally, this big VIP group was going in when they were changing um, from Kiki D's set to Elton's. And they were going in the VIP entrance and this poor security guard had seen this woman and her child. I was 11 or 12 walking around and he said, quick, sneak in, sneak in with them. I won't tell anyone. And he let us in and we found, uh, you know, the, the entryways that go into the stadium, you know, kind of come up like this. And there's a little rooftop over where the stairs go up and sitting on one of these were two fold out chairs. So we were like, quick, let's get, and we sat down just as the lights went down. And the dry ice started streaming off the edge of the stage. And the opening refrain of um, a funeral for a friend started. And then Elton. And my mind was blown forever. And I actually got to tell him that, which was really nice, that he had a huge impact on me musically uh, and that I wound up making it my career and I thanked him for it. How many sisters were there at home? How many sisters do you have? Well, that's a long story. Um, My father was quite prolific, uh, quite prolific. He had three wives and seven children. So uh, his first wife, he had two two girls, uh, my older sisters, Marcia and Dana, and he encouraged all of us not to think about halves or anything. We're just sisters and brothers. So my two older sisters, Marcia and Dana, were quite the uh, figures in uh, and role models for us as well in entertainment in that uh, my sister Marcia was one of the first major black models. Uh, she came up with Grace Jones and Beverly Johnson in the 70s. And so she was on the cover of Essence magazine, things like that. She also was in the iconic... Russ Meyer's classic Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. And I was on that set when I was six years old at the party scene, which is kind of like, why are you bringing this child on? Anyway, explains a lot about me. Um, And then uh, my sister Dana is a uh, professor of dance. Well, both of them were dancers. They danced Naida at the Met with Catherine Dunham and things like that. But Dana went on to become a professor of dance and worked with the Dance Theater of Harlem. She's also a very accomplished songwriter, and she wrote uh, most of Pull Up to the Bumper for Grace Jones. Uh, She's also an actress and a director. Uh, And um, so then my sister Lorelai, who was my one full sister with my mom, 
and dad. Um, she has toured with the Rolling Stones and toured with Pink Floyd with me for a short period of time uh, and toured with Rod Stewart and has worked with the Australian Pink Floyd now for the last 10 years. Then there's me. I'm right in the middle. Then my older sister, my little sister, Laura, was a teacher. Uh, and um, she's also a very talented songwriter, but she didn't like the business. She could have broken in in the 80s and just didn't like it. Uh, so she went on to become a teacher and has four beautiful children, two of whom uh, are award-winning artists. One was presented with an award by the White House. Uh, then uh, my little brother, John, is in the JAG Corps in the Navy, and he's stationed in Japan. Uh, and then my youngest brother, James, has also been in the National Guard and done four tours of uh, Iraq and I think he went to Afghanistan and uh, has two beautiful children. I think, you know, the Elton John story about going there and uh, experiencing something that's so uh, powerful and uh, has an impact on you. Do you, do you believe that was the, the, the moment that opened your eyes to saying, I want to be on stage. I want to be a singer. I want to be part of this. Or did that come later? Well, that was a big part of it because I had initially wanted to follow in my parents' footsteps and go into medicine. I mean, by the time I was nine, I had decided I was going to go to Stanford. Uh, I was going to practice, I was going to be an OBGYN and I was going to practice the Le Boyer method of child birthing. Uh, I was a prolific reader from the age of about two and a half. My sister started teaching me how to read. And um, by the time I finished elementary school, I'd, writ I'd read 95% of the school library. Uh, and in fact, I got the highest score in the history of my elementary school in the IQ tests. Um, but then it was also a very artistic, art, artist-based school. So we would have, every Friday we'd have what they called sings, where we would learn a song in music class and we'd sing and acting productions and things like that. And I always really loved it. And I was cast um, by some friends in a production. They were art students at CalArts, which is an art college here, a uh, university. And um, they were doing a production in the early days of video when the videotapes were about this big. And they cast me as Alice in Alice in Wonderland. Uh, and so that's really when I started getting into acting. And then... I saw Elton. I was also a huge, huge Joni Mitchell fan. She influenced me probably more than almost any other artist musically. Why? Uh, her lyrics are, for someone who loves the written word, when I look at the way that she describes things, the, the, the paintings that she creates with words, the imagery it always pushed me when I started writing things to say, well, that's a bit mundane. How would jo what would Joni say? How would Joni describe this? Uh, Sting is another one who does that for me, lyrically. Prince also just all around, huge influence. But anyway, um, to finally get to where I decided I wanted to be an, an artist, you know who influenced me on that? And I didn't tell her when I met her, and I'm really mad. I said something else really stupid. But Jane Fonda. Oh, wow. One day when I was at home and I'd got, I'd been bitten by the bug. I was definitely into acting. 
I had started also working part-time in my mother's medical practice at her office and started to realize that my fantasies against the reality of working as a doctor, it's not fun. It's really hard work and sick people are really difficult to be around a lot of the time because they're, they don't feel good. So they snap at you and they just, you know, it's very rewarding when you save someone's life and things like that. But I was kind of weighing it out and the day-to-day grind of filing and, you know, working with patients and all that stuff. Then one day Jane was on a talk show and she said, don't get into acting because you want to get into this career because you have to, because something feels missing. Like there's a hole in your soul. If you're not creating your art, get into it because you must. And I realized that that's who I was. And I knew then that I had to go into, Oh, I was an actress before I was a singer. So what did you say to her when you met her? That wasn't the right thing. <laughs> oh, well, um, I was there with my husband at the time, uh, and uh, I said to her, I thanked her for being a huge impact on my sexuality in that I, the first thing I saw her in was Barbarella. And it was so freeing uh, to see that, that it had a big impact on me in in that part of my life. And she kind of looked a little flustered and giggled because that's true. Um, It really did uh, have a big impact on my sexuality because he was so free and it was so matter of fact and wasn't, you know, you have to realize, you know, I'm 58. I'll be 59 this year. And back then it was just the beginnings of the era of free love and people were still fighting the shame and the, puritanical attitudes towards sex that people have in this country. And um, Barbarella was shocking when it came out. And I remember thinking, Ooh, you know, this, you're a little kid. So it's kind of like, I'm not supposed to see this. And then when I saw it, I, I, you know, I thought to myself, this is how it's supposed to be. You're not supposed to be apologetic about sex. You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. What vision did you have for yourself as an artist in those early days? What vision, what what did you say to yourself, this is what I want to be, this is what I'm going to go for? Well, when I first started at UCLA as a theatre arts major, of course I wanted to do the classics. And I wanted to play Blanche Dubois. Oh, all young actresses want to play Blanche. But unfortunately, at that time, I was 18. What the hell did I know about the kind of pain that Blanche had been through that made her who she was? I could play the hell out of that part now. Let me tell you. Um, but I wanted to, I wanted to, see, that was the other thing that was a rude awakening for me, is I wanted to play all the great roles, but they didn't cast black actresses in those roles. And in fact, I left UCLA because I started noticing a trend. I played, uh, I was cast every quarter, which is good. 
um, that the professors liked me, but I played a maid. I played a voice where you never saw me. I played Tichuba the slave in the crucible. See where I'm going with this? And then um, I, of course, had fallen in love with the bard. And you're a young, impressionable actor. You fall in love with Shakespeare. And so I was taking a Shakespeare class and my professor was amazing. Um, and so a main stage production came up and I auditioned. And um, Professor Hackett, I, I loathe this creature to this day. Uh, oh, you're so amazing. You must be so familiar with this material. Oh, it's amazing. And I was like, wow, he really liked my performance. And he called me back. And then I got to final callbacks. And every time he just gushed about my performance and how comfortable I seemed to feel with the language. And I was all excited. And when they put up the cast list, I was not cast so much as a walk-on in the crowd scenes. And I was devastated. So I set a meeting with him in his office. And I said, why did you gush over my auditions and you didn't cast me? And he said, well, you're so striking. And a director must think of these things. You draw the eye. And I'm thinking, well, isn't that kind of what you want for your leading lady? And then he went on to say, and I was considering you for the part of the courtesan, which is the whore. And it hit me. He was not going to cast a black actress in a main stage Shakespeare production. And I was livid. I was furious. And I thought to myself, well, if I'm going to put up with this kind of racism in casting, and my mother is paying them thousands of dollars for me to go there every year, why don't I put up with this kind of racism in casting where they're paying me? So I dropped out. And six months later, I was cast in Flashdance. What was your role in Flashdance? Uh, I played heels, a stripper. <laughs> and that was the other thing. So I started playing, you know, I started acting professionally and I played heels, a stripper. And I played Willow, the head of the black prison faction in this horrible movie called Vendetta. Uh, and then I played uh, a hooker opposite Gary Sinise on a television show called Hunter. Uh, same kind of thing. Very racist, uh, racist casting. And then... I wound up getting into music accidentally. And what stood against me as an actor was all in my favor as a singer because everyone wanted the big black backing vocalist. And my first tour ever was Pink Floyd. And in the next part of this interview, Durga talks about how she looks back at those very successful years and how in recent times the loss of her husband has affected her. It's moving and inspiring and well worth a listen. And if you like the podcasts and you want to help, please just type into Google steadyhq.com and pop the history makers. And there you'll find a page where you can sign up to the newsletter or become a member and help me continue with this podcast. Thanks for listening and look out for more of Pop's History Makers with me, Steve Blame.